So we need to be looking at today and we need to be looking at the future. And I think one of the key things, though, is to just recognize that in a lot of situations when we're innovating, you know, the world outside of us is changing, so we need to be able to address that. And we can't rely on our, our past experiences to be able to deliver us the solutions that we need. Welcome back to another episode of the Making Magic podcast. I'm Sean Jay, your host, and I'm a professional magician, speaker, and 3D designer. And this is all about inspiring conversations with the movers, the shakers, the visionaries, and the makers, the wizards behind the curtain that make the magic for you. Now, if this is your first time tuning into the show, thank you so much for doing so. It really does mean a lot to me because I put a lot of hard work into each and every one of these episodes. Whether you're listening to the sound of my voice on any one of the popular podcast apps or on YouTube, hopefully you'll decide if you're a podcast type of person that you'll uh, follow the show. Follow me along for the ride and uh, leave a healthy review of the show. And if you're here on YouTube, feel free to give this show a thumbs up, comment below, turn on the notification bell, and subscribe. You guys know what to do because I'm all about getting your creative gears turning, and that's what this show is all about. Whether you feel like you're stuck with a certain thought pattern and you want to break out of your current thought pattern, if you feel boxed in and trying to be inspired to think in new ways, well, I've got some of the world's most creative people that are sharing their process with you on this show. So I hope you decide to join me on the journey and I'll be releasing episodes like every week now. So I hope you guys are enjoying this stuff. So with all that being said, let's learn a little bit more about our next guest. Hey guys, welcome back to another episode of the Making Magic Podcast. I'm so excited because my special guest is Steve Shapiro. Now, Steve's going to introduce himself, let you guys know a little bit more about who he is and what he does. I think you guys will really enjoy this. I appreciate that. Um, so basically, my whole career has been focused on innovation. I'm always looking at uh, more on the people side of innovation. I know you deal a lot with sort of the product side. I'm always looking at capabilities and how people think. Uh, started off my career at Accenture leading a 20,000-person innovation practice, and then 20 years ago, I left that and now I've been doing my own thing, helping companies around the world. Okay, so an innovation keynote speaker. So one of the things that uh, I noticed about you, Stephen, is that besides authoring a number of different books and things, well, I guess your latest one uh, has, it's all about asking the right questions rather than just asking a bunch of questions in your book, Invisible Solutions, it's, it's the right questions. Yeah, and it, it's really about reframing. So one of the things that happens is we're trying to solve a problem. We're trying to deal with an opportunity that we have in front of us, and we assume that on face value, the problem we're solving is the right problem, when in fact, in most cases, it's not. We need to look at it from a different angle. So what the book gives you is 25 different ways to take what you think is the problem, what you think is the opportunity, and look at it from a different perspective unleashing and, um, you know, giving you new perspectives that you would have missed otherwise. Okay. Okay. And, and I thought you were a perfect guest for the Make Magic podcast because this is all about people who uh, make magic in their businesses and lives. And we're trying to get our creative gears turning as they were behind me. And one of the best ways to do that is to actually realize how many different gears are available in our tool set rather than just spinning the same gear right, over and over and over again, getting the same results, we might need to switch gears. For sure. I mean, the, the, the reality is as human beings, we're wired to perpetuate the past because what we've done in the past kept us alive. So the brain says, cool, if you did this before and it didn't kill you, let's keep on doing it. But if we really want to start getting some new changes, some new perspectives, then what we need to do is be able to look at the world differently and that's really, to me, the key is one of the things that I believe is that expertise is often the enemy of certain types of innovation. Our past experiences limit our ability to see new and different futures because 
We assume what worked in the past will work in the future, but we know that's not the case. So then is this, Stephen, the way – is this why then we are hardwired to typically ask ineffective questions? There's a few reasons why we tend to ask ineffective questions. One of them is that we are very past-based in our questions, so we have a limited perspective on things. Uh, but also our ineffective questions come from the fact that we really, as human beings, like to jump to solutions and answers quickly. And the key to asking better questions, or better yet, the key to better solutions, is to stop looking for solutions and to actually stop, pause, and see, am I really solving the right problem? But we're so wired, especially you know, in, in companies, like, don't bring me problems, bring me solutions. So we beat it into people that we need the answer when, in fact, Sometimes better answers come from not looking for the answer, but actually stopping and making sure that we're looking at things from the right angle. Okay, so since our brain is hardwired just to rely on the past, then how can we uh, learn to like retrain our brain and put ourselves in a different state of mind to focus maybe on the future? Should we be focused on the future or should we just be focused more on the present? Which part of the time frame should we actually be focused on? Yeah, that's a great question. I think the answer is actually both. I mean, you can't be looking at just the present, but you can't just be looking at the future. That's actually uh, the, my next book that's coming out uh, later this year is all around that, is how do you make decisions today that are actually going to give you a sustainable competitive advantage in the future? So we need to be looking at today and we need to be looking at the future and I think one of the key things, though, is to just recognize that in a lot of situations when we're innovating, you know, the world outside of us is changing, so we need to be able to address that. And we can't rely on our, our past experiences to be able to deliver us the solutions that we need. True. And as far as, as, far as taking something, because you mentioned looking at it through different lenses and, and reframing things, because, I mean, I don't know. I've heard that concept mentioned a lot. Just it just depends on how you view something. So, if, if is is there a way that you can uh, elaborate on that as far as far as the the magic of reframing things and why that's so important? Sure. So, a very I'll tell a very very short version of a story I often tell, uh, and it's basically I call it my baggage claim story. And in essence. The way it goes is a, an, an airport was trying to figure out a way of speeding up the bags because people were complaining it took too long. So they spent a ton of money on faster conveyor belts, more baggage handlers, newer technology, and they were able to cut the time in half that it took for the bags to get from the plane to the baggage carousel, but passengers were still complaining. They knew they couldn't get the bags to go any faster, and then they had a realization. It took the bags eight to ten minutes to get from the plane to the baggage carousel, but it only took the passengers one to three minutes to get from the plane to the baggage carousel. So instead of speeding up the bags, they decided to slow down the passengers. They literally reconfigured the airport. And, and the point of this is that there's so many different ways we can look at a problem. You know, are we really looking to speed up the bags? Are we looking to reduce wait time? What if we created a better wait experience? Maybe people wouldn't mind waiting if baggage claim wasn't so boring. What if we created an experience for them? So there's just so many different things that could be done. But if we assume it's all around speeding up the bags, we have such a limited set of possible solutions. Yeah, yeah, that's a great, that's a great way to just explain it at a easy to grasp level just for everybody to understand. Like, that's, that's so true because we always, like, typically we focus on the specific problem to solve. Like you said, the people waiting too long. So then they box themselves in to just focusing on that. But then as the story says, well, maybe we could change some of the other stuff that would mitigate uh, and give them something to do in that time. So they really didn't have to actually change anything with the baggage claim part. It was all about the the weight and the the journey that the customer took before they got to the claim that took up that extra time. That's really that's really smart. Um, and, you know, like with what I do with, with the world of magic, it's the same thing. Like we're so focused on fixing one problem. And then if we like zoom out just to get that, that third person view, we go, oh my goodness, it has nothing to do with this at all. And everything to do with this thing way over here that totally, we've got these 
got these uh, horse blinders on. And, and I just want to say the, the, the blinders aren't necessarily bad if we're able to shift our perspective. So a lot of times people will say we need to think outside the box, which means we need to reframe the problem in a bigger space. The problem is the brain actually likes constraints. The brain actually wants to have those blinders on. But if we're looking here, looking at speeding up the bags, we're not going to look over here to slow down the passengers. If we're looking over here to reduce the wait time, we might not look over here to improve the wait experience. So it's not so much that we're expanding our thinking. We're just looking in a different place, but we still have constraints. And I find that's just a, a really important and powerful part of innovation is the brain really loves the box. It's just typically the wrong box. Yeah, yeah. And, and I was also wa watching one of your talks when you said that giving someone a blank piece of paper often is really confusing and makes innovation and creation harder rather than saying here's here are the rules for, for like – not the rules, but like the end goal, like starting with the, maybe the end goal in mind first and then working backwards. Would you agree? Yeah. I mean, I'll give you a very simple example. This is actually an exercise I do with my clients to just demonstrate the power of constraints. Uh, this will take just a minute. Uh, I didn't plan on doing this, but I happen to have a brick right next to me. Oh, okay. uh, And I use this brick. Some, yeah, this one's actually a prop brick. You can see it's sort of rubber because I can't travel with a real brick in my luggage. But uh, one of the things that I'll do is I'll have people in my audiences. I'll give them 30 seconds. I'll get them into pairs. And I'll say, come up with all the different uses of a brick. And in 30 seconds, they will come up with things like Use it in a chimney or a patio if you're missing a brick. Or because it's heavy, we could use it as a doorstop. So what they do is they look at the brick, what they know about the brick, their past experiences of the brick, and they make decisions based on that. So then I have them try this again. But this time, instead of being able to do anything you want with a brick, they have to use it for one specific thing, and they can choose anything. So, for example, if you were to use a brick on the body... Well, you could use it to pump up your biceps. You could use it to improve your posture. Uh, if you have rough skin, you could use it as a loofah. So there's lots of different ways that you use a brick on the body. And when I ask audiences the question, which method yielded solutions that you felt were more creative, more novel, and maybe even more valuable, the first way, use of a brick, or the second way, use of a brick for a specific context, 90% of the audiences tend to go for the second method. But here's what's interesting. That second method has a box. The first method is they think outside the box. You can do anything with a brick. But if I tell you you can do anything you want with a brick, you're going to come up with the things you've always thought of in the past. The constraints are going to force us and stretch us to think differently. Mm. So the, the constraints specifically in the second part were... Remind me of, of what the constraints were in the second one. So in this case, I said you could use a brick, but only on the body. Oh, only so on the So now we have to focus. And, and we've actually done real-world experiments with this. I mean, so that's just sort of a fun exercise. But we've done real-world experiments where we would take a company's product, for example, a client that was in the label maker business. And what they used to do is say, okay, we want to sell label makers to people who go beyond the craft industry. How would we do that? And they would ask people for their ideas, and they get a lot of random, useless ideas. So then what they decided to do is every day when people walked into the office, they would see on a wall a random context. Use of our label maker in a toll booth. Use of our label maker in a hospital. Use of our label maker in a library. Whatever it might be. And the solutions that they developed because they were context sensitive were more valuable. It actually helped their thinking. So what they created was something was actually implementable rather than sort of the random, you know, ideas that they would typically generate if you didn't give them that box. Mm. So that just completely blows out of the water the whole, the whole cliche saying think outside the box. Yeah, that's so – I think the, re right, the reason why it's cliche is because it's so vague. It's like what box? Which right. box are we talking about? <laughs> There's an infinite number of boxes we can create, like you said, to – to give us the context to which we're generating these ideas. And if you don't even have that, you're just pulling from the ether, which is almost like, um, yeah, it's like throwing spaghetti against the wall. Something's going to stick, but probably take a long time and it's going to be pretty messy. 
Well, and that's one of the other things which I'm always looking at is I recognize it, it's one thing as an individual for us to sort of sit around and come up with lots of ideas, but as an organization, which is what I do as I work with larger companies, we don't have the ability to sift through thousands and thousands of terrible ideas. What we really want to do is find solutions to well-framed problems and opportunities because we're then narrowing our focus to something that's going to create the greatest value. So most companies, what they'll do is they have suggestion boxes. Give us your idea. The problem is, and we've seen this over and over and over, is if you ask people for their ideas, they're going to give you ideas about things that are important to them, but maybe not the company, or they're really low value, but it's a pet peeve of theirs. But if you say, here's something we as an organization need to solve, and if we can solve this, it will have a profound impact on the way we do business. Help us find a solution. Here's the criteria. Now, whatever you get is going to be incredibly valuable. And we've seen just the, the, the quality and the value of the solutions increase just many, many, many times over the traditional suggestion box approach. Yep, I agree because, because you're, you're, you're giving people a target, whereas before there was no target. <laughs> Literally no exactly. target. When you say, give us your suggestion, well, yeah, for what? <laughs> what are you trying to do? It's like, it's like, um, it's like, reminds me of like goal setting, right? People talk about setting and achieving goals all the time, but they, they often forget the specific part of those specific, uh, realistic goals where people say, I want to lose weight. Well, how much? By when? What do you want to look like? What body type? Or I want to make more money. I want to be rich. Well, how much? How much money do you want to make? By, by when? And it's, I guess it's kind of the same thing with, with, with what you're talking about as far as innovation, getting, drilling down really specific. Here's what we want. Now go. Ready, set, boom. Now you're like, yeah. ah. And then, right, I think the brain, it seems like the brain works better that way because, like, when we're given a to-do list or something, it's really easy to go down the list. But, and, and with what you're saying, it's almost like this incomplete to-do list, like where your brain has to fill in the blanks to meet the criteria. I'll give you um, <clears throat> sort of a little expansion on this. There's something I call the Goldilocks principle when it comes to innovation. So, you know, Goldilocks and three bears, she goes into a house, one bed's too soft, one bed's too hard, one's just right. Well, the same thing is true when it comes to the questions that we ask, the framing of the problem. So we have basically two default mechanisms for framing problems. The first one is we tend to ask questions that are big, broad, and abstract. How can we increase revenues? What are ideas for improving the business? Whatever it might be, because that's easiest to just throw out a very large, abstract problem. The issue is when we do that, we get a lot of abstract, irrelevant, unimportant solutions. On the flip side, though, and this is sort of the, the, the other side of this that's really important, though, is sometimes we will have uh, reframes that are too specific. They are solutions masquerading as questions, or they are questions that are so narrowly defined that the odds of finding a solution are pretty small. So there's a little bit of art and science associated with getting it just right. So one of my books, I will say, is called Goal free living. It's on how to live a life without goals. So I'm not a big fan of goals. Uh, and the reason is because when we get too specific with our goals, it actually limits, we, we get on that Goldilocks principle too specific. And when we're too specific, we actually limit the range of possible uh, ways of looking at the world. So it's just getting it just right. Uh, that is really one of the things which I, I teach my clients to do is how can we ask better questions that have that right level of not too broad, not too specific, something that's going to give us the ultimate type of solution. That means your, your goal, well, you don't like to use the word goals. Or yeah. your, your, your aspirations, your targets that you're trying to hit, the, the, you need to be open to, to changing them. If something else comes along the line, maybe that's easier or better, right? Because, yeah, I think that's kind of what you're talking about. You get so hyper-focused on that target that you may completely miss the easier solution that actually answers the question to begin with because of those blinders that you had on. So absolutely. I mean, I, I one of the things I, I believe is that you want to have, instead of a specific destination, you want to have a sense of direction and then meander with purpose. And I love that term meandering with purpose because basically 
whether it's in business or in life, we don't have all of the facts and data and information to make well-informed decisions. So as we, like in, in, in the makerspace and the innovation space, as we start developing new solutions, we test them out because we don't have all the data. So we want to iterate in the development of something in order to be able to get that new information. Well, that's basically the concept of meandering with purposes. Let's move in a specific direction, get some feedback from the market that says this is good, this is not good. We'll do a course correction, and then we keep on changing direction as opposed to saying in five years this is where we're going to be. The world's not going to be the same in five years. How could you ever in a million years possibly predict where you want to be in five years, let alone five days it seems like right now? So it's having that flexibility, but also having stability. The key is to make sure that as we are moving forward, it is built on a solid foundation rather than like during the pandemic. I mean, we've been spinning around and spinning around and spinning around, not efficient, not producing a lot of great results. Part of it was a knee-jerk reaction to a necessary situation, but we've continued to do it and we're burning people out. They're not able to get work done. So how do we plant our feet and actually get the best we can get from people by giving them some kind of solid platform to work from. Yeah, yeah. Give give them the solid platform, but yeah, like, like be be open to to shifting at any time based on external circumstances, inputs, environment. Because yeah, you're right. That's that is a really great point. Where do you want to be five years from now? Yeah, like so in in today, ever since 2020 in today's society, five years is like. 500 years skip now because it's like every day there's 10 new regulations there's 10 new changes there's tr all these things changing and so right you have to keep like you keep your pulse on it with that with your end goal in mind but realize that you may need to meet, do some more meandering to fit and right. match with your environment to get that just right what about um exactly Idea, you mentioned idea-based innovation versus question-based innovation to increase ROI. What, what exactly do you mean by that? So the idea-based innovation is what most companies tend to use when they have some kind of suggestion box or idea management system. And they will say, what are your ideas for improving the business? And one of the things you'll end up getting is literally hundreds or thousands of ideas of which we found on average less than 2% have real, true, game-changing potential. It doesn't mean the other 98% aren't good, but they're not as valuable as they could be. And so what we've done is we've created a lot of dissipation of energy. So if you think about it, let's say you have a suggestion box with a 1,000 ideas. Well, it took the person who submitted the idea time to think about it, go into the system, document it, but now we have to have people evaluate it. All these things take time. So if we have 1,000 ideas of which 2, 10, 15 are good, well, that's not really an extremely efficient way to run a business. So this question-based, I call it challenge-centered innovation, where basically we start with the issue, problem, challenge, or opportunity, and then from there, we start looking at uh, what can we do to solve this problem. And so when we start with the question, the advantage is, first of all, we know what we're looking for. So we can give the evaluation criteria. We can also line up the sponsors and the owners. One of the challenges with idea-driven innovation is that you put an idea into a suggestion box, but if there's nobody inside the company who thinks they could do anything with it, it's not part of their charter, well, it might be a great idea, but nobody does anything with it. So when you start with the question, when you start with the challenge, we have the sponsors, the owners, the funding, the resources, the evaluation criteria, the evaluators, so that once we get a good solution, we're able to start implementation. And because it's more narrowly defined, instead of a thousand ideas, you might get 20 solutions. Much more efficient. One of my clients, they started off with idea-driven innovation. They went to challenge-centered innovation. And at the minimum, they were finding it was a tenfold improvement in their innovation ROI when they shifted over to challenges rather than ideas. Mm. Right. I guess because it's the human, the human brain is naturally hardwired to solve problems. That's what we do 24-7. And when you're, you said challenge-based innovation, is that what you said? Yeah, challenge-centered, challenge-based. But yes, starting with the question, 
rather than the answer. Yeah, challenge, right? Because our brains love a challenge, which is the whole reason why some people enjoy watching a magic show because oftentimes, unfortunately, people think about it in the wrong frame of reference. It's one big puzzle to be solved, and the whole goal of the performer is to take it out of that and turn it into more of an ex- a fun experience, and, and we can learn something along the way rather than a puzzle. But naturally, our brain likes to solve puzzles. So, yeah, it puts it in the right yeah. right way to, to get your brain working probably in its optimum state. Just as a quick aside, I don't know if you know this, but I'm actually a more of a wannabe magician, but I go to every magic show I possibly can. I have a, a whole set, like a big, big box of literally a hundred different magic tricks. Because for me, what I love about it, first of all, I love the performance aspect. But it is for me, I like... I like to know how things are done because it then gives me insights into how I can use that thinking in the future. And you've probably seen this is like, there are some magic tricks when you know how they're done, you're like, oh, that's such a letdown. But then there are some, when you know how it's done, you're like, oh, wow, the brain that figured this out, spectacular. Yes. And that to me is like, I just love those moments of joy finding something where somebody solved the problem in such a clever way that it just blows your mind. Yeah, there's there's a certain percentage of magic effects that are done to please magicians just purely by the insane methodology. <laughs> and it's funny because magicians love it, but like generally the public doesn't know any difference, so all they end up seeing is the same effect. You know, something disappears and reappears, and you can do that in so many different ways. But for a magician, it's the one with all the cogs and the gears and the flipping doors and where it rolls down. And it's like, wow, it's like this whole, it's like this whole machine underneath, like the Wizard of Oz. Uh, and, then, and then it's the simple stuff I've often found, the one that disappoints you with the method, so oftentimes may get a better uh, response <laughs> from the audience. Yeah. It's like simple sometimes. Uh, uh, uh- I'll give you a, a, a quick, but this is so important innovation because we sometimes will confuse how it's done with the impact that it has. Yes. I remember I was at this event uh, with a, and, and one of the people that was there is a buddy of mine. He's a, he's a speaker, but he also does magic. And he was doing some real, you know, knuckle busting, sleights of hand, things that were just holy moly. And the audience is sort of like, ah. and then yep. he does the invisible deck, which I know you know. Yep. And, the audience fell off their chairs. Yep. But it, and it, look, I love how that's done because it's really super clever. But it also shows you that complex does not equate to perceived value. And that's one of the mistakes people make in innovation is they figure, well, I'm going to have a remote control. I need to add more buttons because more buttons is going to give you more features. And no, you know, people want fewer buttons. People want something that's more intuitive. People want something that's meets them where they are, not necessarily where the magician or the innovator is. And so I just think that's such an incredibly important part of the innovation process in general. Yeah, thank you for linking that to everything that we're talking about because, yes, it is true. It's really true. Yes, and you're right. With that magic example, yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, pe- I-, I know people who have made a whole career out of just using that effect. I mean, look at, look at David Blaine. That was probably one of the most powerful reactions he got on his uh, early magic specials. He was doing that effect in Washington Square Park. And it's just, it's because it's so linear. It's so linear, it doesn't take really much to describe or understand. You, you give them the information, boom, you spread the cards, it's there. Yeah, I think I've, I've also noticed too, just with creating magic and in your line of work, just discussing innovation, talking to companies about creating new things and breaking the status quo, right? It takes probably more work sometimes to, to simplify everything because we have all these, all these possibilities and then to get to simple, uh, yeah, is, is often harder than it looks, isn't it? You're so right. And that's why the framing becomes really important is because in a lot of cases, the reason why something's complex to solve is because we've made so many assumptions about the problem and the solution. Yeah. 
And if we can actually challenge those assumptions and try to be able to look at it from a different angle and realize maybe we can achieve the same result or a similar result in a very different way, well, now we can develop something that's going to give us greater value, greater impact, going to take less energy, lower risk. Everybody wins in that situation. But it seems as though, for some reason, we always equate innovation with complexity, whereas sometimes the best innovations are the simplest innovation. I, I really believe that simplification is often the best innovation. How can we uh, really create something that is elegant and simple? I mean, that's why Apple is so successful, is, you know, the, if I showed you the Apple, you know, remote control, it's got like one button on it. It has almost nothing on it. But it's elegant and simple, and that's their design principle. That should be a design principle we use for almost everything we do in innovation. Yeah, I think, I think if I'm, correct me if I'm wrong, I think that's a lot just to do with pulling from like Asian philosophy, like just Zen and, and Buddhism kind of just taking everything and distilling it down into what is only absolutely necessary. Like uh, I, I read a book, it was a, it's an alternative health book, and it was written by this, this Zen Buddhist guy, and he was talking about how people drink tea, and they start with the certain amount of tea, and you keep boiling it down, and you drink the tea, and then you keep using the same leaves, and you boil it down, and it's a practice to keep boiling it down over and reusing the leaves until the water becomes like clear to where you can't you think there's no taste left but if you've if you've tuned your palate to be sensitive enough you can still taste the essence of the tea even after it's been boiled down so many times and it's all about just bo literally boiling down your ideas right i think maybe that like the the frame of uh boiler boiler room you know, putting your ideas in a boiler room might be the same kind of thing. Boil it down and you keep extracting. Get rid of all the crap and just keep throwing it out. And then you finally swim and then you you got that one little gem, that one nugget. Yeah, there's a great quote. Uh, the author of The Little Prince said, Perfection is not attained when there's no longer anything left to add, but when there's no longer anything left to remove. And... I just always love that the simplicity of that quote to basically say, you know, instead of always adding more, I mean, you figure like Microsoft Word, it does a billion things, but what if we were to figure out how could we, with a button, eliminate 99% of the distractions that most people would never use? How could we create better software, better products that meet the needs of everyone, yet it also is able to work for the, the core audience really well? Uh, one of the lenses in the, the Invisible Solutions book is the variations lens, which says we often tend to use a one-size-fits-all strategy. we got this big product or this big piece of software, but what if we looked at what are the most common cases? Like we take Microsoft products. I, I use them all the time, of course, but and I'm more of a power user, but 99% of the people use them use four or five features. What if you could push a button and everything disappeared, other things that you always use, and then you had sort of this Zen approach to software, but allowing everybody else to have access to what they need. So it's, I, you know, I think it's just a great design principle in general is to not design for everyone equally, but design to handle the exception, not for the exception, and then be able to always focus on simplification as one of the, the mantras. I agree 1,000%. So you, you, I wasn't going to ask you this, but you answered it. Like one of the lenses specifically that you mentioned in the book, you, you said was variation? Variations lens, yes. Okay, so can you, can you give us examples of a couple of the other, like two more lenses? So we have like three as sure. an example that we can just kind of play with. And then if, if the viewers and listeners are more interested, they could check out your book, Invisible Solutions. Sure. So one of the lenses I use pretty much all the time is the resequence lens. So we make a lot of assumptions about the timing of things. We assume everything has to happen in a particular order. Now, we could predict, we could postpone, we could do things in parallel. So if you go to McDonald's during peak time, like when it's really busy, they're not going to make each order to meet your specifications. They've already made a whole bunch of them. They're under the, the warming lights and they just sort of predict how many Big Macs people are going to want. But during slow times, well, that's going to lead to waste. So they are going to shift to a, well, let's postpone the decision on when we make the burgers. 
And the same thing is true during the pandemic is what ended up happening is during the pandemic, everybody assumed from a timing perspective, every conversation needs to be done synchronously through Zoom. And one of the most powerful things I've done with my clients is to have them ask the question, which is a timing question, a resequencing question is what could be done asynchronously that doesn't need to take place with everybody at the same time, whether it's using Slack or some other tools, we've implemented a number of different strategies to be able to simplify the process, allow people to work when it's convenient for them rather than, okay, I've got to be on this call at 10 o'clock. And it's a real game changer when you think about timing. So resequencing is another one that I find very important. Uh, and that'll just give you one last one, which is the analogy lens. And this comes back to something we talked about earlier, which is if expertise is the enemy of innovation, well, how do we find new breakthroughs? Well, sometimes you want to look to someone else in a completely different area of expertise. So if I'm trying to solve a problem in the retail industry, instead of talking to more retail people, maybe I talk to people in hospitals or airlines, or, or I worked in Formula One for a number of years. Maybe we talk to race car drivers. There's going to be solutions to our problem somewhere else if we take the time to ask the question, who else? Those are two powerful words. Who else? has solved a similar problem, but in a different area of expertise. So those are just a few of the lenses, the variations lens, the resequence lens, the analogy lens, and then the leverage lens is sort of the 80-20 rule. Like what can we do, the one thing that's gonna have the greatest impact, and if we focused on just that, maybe we can take something that's a big, broad, abstract problem and make it more specific. So there's 25 of those. Those are some of the ones I use a lot. Mm, mm. And in, in one of your, your speeches that, that was online that I saw, uh, you mentioned an example of someone using uh, a way to solve a problem completely outside the industry, the, the guy who solved the problem with the oil pipeline yeah. by going back yeah. to biology, right? Well, so the, there's a, a few different oil spills that we've had. The one oh, which I really right. love is the, the Exxon Valdez oil spill, which was 1989. And the issue there was temperature because every time they tried to extract the oil water mixture, it would freeze because of the temperatures were below freezing and it was in an enclosed space. So for nearly 20 years, they tried to solve the problem. How can we prevent an oil water mixture from freezing? Spent tons of money, couldn't find a solution. And then they reframed the problem and realized this has nothing to do with oil specifically. This has nothing to do with temperature specifically. It's a common fluid dynamics issue called viscous shearing, which basically means any dense liquid that is put under a force or acceleration or in some kind of movement will start to act like a solid. So when the question was asked, how do we prevent viscous shearing in a dense liquid? A solution was found in six weeks for $20,000 and a person in the construction industry who was working with cement chutes clogging had the solution. So you got oil spills, and construction industry. We've seen solutions from pizza delivery that solved the problem in the insurance industry, a musician solving a problem for a potato chip manufacturer. I have just literally dozens and dozens of really cool examples of how solutions were developed by looking elsewhere. Yeah. 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 So everybody's heard of the, the phrase, you know, try to be the dumbest person in the room, but sometimes, right, we need to pull in people from other rooms to, to, to come into our room and be like, Hey, you're the janitor, right? But what do you think of this? And you might be surprised have some really like, right? Because it's those people that are, they're never looking at the problem. Like the way you and your fellow f experts are, they're just like, Oh, well, what if we, right? What if we just take the speaker and do this? Or just, what if we, what if we, like, if you ask a seamstress about the, the oil problem, you know, what if we can just sew it up and it's like, and, and then people go, really? I never thought, I never even thought that was possible because that that's outside of their, outside of their box. Exactly. Exactly. So you're giving the perfect example of how we can find better boxes. The better boxes are to say, who else might have solved something similar to that? And, you know, NASA, I've done a bunch of work with NASA over the years and they found solutions to some of their big challenges from the uh, lingerie industry, really? the light gossamer material, uh, Hollywood with like stunt uh, people jumping off of buildings into airbags. Those types of technologies are used to like land capsules. So, you know, there's solutions everywhere. We just have to know how to look for them and find them.
that I wasn't aware of, but that that uh, makes me very curious to want to start learning more about these examples. And I'm sure, uh, besides the lenses and besides explaining uh, your your thinking for innovation, I'm sure you have plenty of those examples in your book. I would think, right? Yes, it's jam packed with examples. Awesome, awesome. So you guys need to check out Invisible Solutions. Take a look. Look at the lenses. Look at the examples. It will definitely expand your mind. So do you happen to have, like, being that you're in the innovation creative space, is there something that you ever created by mistake and then it just turned out to be like this amazing, crazy success? I'm not sure by mistake, but I will say that there was something I created that I didn't intend to create. Okay. And it was basically making connection. So for well over 20 years, I've had this assessment to determine how people contribute to innovation. You know, because my belief is everybody contributes, we just contribute in different ways. And so it was basically a spreadsheet that had four columns, 10 rows. Each column and row had a word. And what you did was you went through and you selected the words that best described you. And you would sort that and it would basically tell you how you contribute to innovation, which is fine. It's boring as anything. And so I was just playing around with that in the back of my mind. And then I went to Las Vegas. I was playing blackjack at the Venetian. And I sort of got the, wait a second, there's four columns in my spreadsheet. There's four suits in the deck of cards. You got 13 numbers. Okay, well, I got to add a few. But we've also got the colors. We've got the numbers. And so we went through and did a number of different experiments, took a regular deck of poker cards, and I took the words from my spreadsheet, put them in there, started playing around with them to see how we could create a system, and then expanded over time. And basically what it became is this, this product called Personality Poker. And basically they're just custom-developed cards that have, you know, words on them with the suits, the colors, and the numbers that describe particular attributes. And then you go trade these with other people in the room. And based on the suits, the colors, and the numbers you end up with in your hand, that tells you about how you contribute to innovation. But more importantly, who you need to partner with that you might not necessarily partner with. Because who we are is often less important than who we are not. We can highlight our blind spots. That tells us the person we need to work with. So I wouldn't say this was totally an accident, but it came from an unlikely place when I was playing blackjack in Las Vegas and made that connection between innovation, a spreadsheet, and a deck of cards. That's really cool. And how long ago was that? So the spreadsheet I've had for decades, I, I think it was 2005 when I had the first version of Personality Poker. So we're closing in on 20 years soon. Um, so it's been a long time. So you are the creator of this thing now called Personality Poker. Yes. Yes. That is fascinating. Yeah. I mean, I think that's really cool because like taking, it's the same thing, like taking something that's boring in that typical context and then turning it into a game and people, right? Humans always want to have fun. I mean, who doesn't want to have fun at work and what better way to, to combine it all is you have fun while you're learning about yourself, learning about who you can become and how how you can uh, attract others into your team to help you become that better kind of person. That is fascinating. Is that available on your website? It is. And you just go to personalitypoker.com and you can buy decks of cards. And uh, we have a whole video instruction training program that helps you go through the process. And what I love about it is you can do this with any size group. I mean, so I did an event in Las Vegas at a casino 1,000 people. It was just a blast. I mean, because people are on their hands and knees, they're trading cards, high energy in the room. People are standing up, moving around. We do so much with this. So it's, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's a, just a lot of fun. And uh, I love it when people decide to buy the cards and then they write me afterwards. And say, oh my goodness, this was so incredible. We, we found things that just like in 15 minutes, we were able to discover things we just never knew about ourselves. And that's what I love is it's a fun way to see things about yourself. And look, it's not the only personality type of assessment. It's not the only one done with cards. There are other ones out there, but the fact that it's done with poker cards and the suits, the colors, and the numbers all have meaning and it links specifically to innovation, I think makes that somewhat uh, a unique combination. Yeah, yeah, that's, that's, that's awesome, Steve. And now is, is there something then that you have been working on and it just blew up in your face and was this big epic fail? Has that ever, I mean, because we're all human. I mean, we, we have 
times where we're not yeah. perfect and we slip up. Is there anything that you can think of like anecdotal that you can share with us? Yeah, I'll give you one. And it's, it's actually good to link it back to personality poker because okay. back when this happened, which was 1995, so we're going back almost three decades now, I didn't have personality poker. Had I had personality poker, this problem wouldn't have happened. So what was going on is I was working for Accenture, uh, had this big group of people. I was given a $30 million budget to create a new program. Uh, it was a new methodology that was going to be around strategy. And so big budget. And I'm, I'm sort of like this creative kind of guy, I guess. And the person that I chose as the co-leader, well, he was sort of a creative guy, liked people, liked ideas. And at the end of the $30 million project, we had lots of really cool, novel, creative ideas. We had a lot of people on the team who were excited and happy to work with us because that was important to us. But we forgot to create anything of value. So basically, that money that was spent, we couldn't really do anything with it because we had that blind spot that I talked about. We didn't think about implementation. We didn't think about adoption. We didn't think about you know, the, the data and science behind it. It was just like, cool idea, cool idea. We could do this. And that's really what I love about personality poker is it prevents me from doing that uh, in the future because now I make sure that I'm, what I say, playing with a full deck, which means I surround myself with people who have different styles and different personalities and different perspectives. That's going to help me a lot in my work. So specifically, what wasn't implemented? I mean, $30 million, that's a massive budget to implement something. So like, what, was, yeah. what made it an epic fail that was left out? We didn't focus enough on how we're going to pull it together in a useful format that people could actually adopt. So it was a collection of ideas. Look, was it valuable? Yeah, there was value to it. So don't get me wrong, it wasn't a complete disaster. It wasn't like we threw the whole thing in the trash. Hmm. But it wasn't what it could have been. Had we really looked at it through the lens of how are people going to use this? What is the best way to uh, implement this so that the, the gap between what people need to know and what this methodology would help close could be relatively small. So we just, we just dropped the ball in terms of really thinking through how is this going to be transformational rather than we thought it would be just cool, fun, and different. I and see. I think, but that's, you know how this works. Sometimes, whether it's in magic or whether it's in uh, the, the creator space, we, we develop things because they're new and different and we've collapsed novelty with value. If it's new and different, if it's cool, if it's exciting, well, of course people are going to want it. And it's not the way it works. So, you know, that's, I think, really just an important point here is we always need to be looking at it from who's going to use this, how do we make it as desirable for them, how do we make it something that they're going to want, that they're going to be able to use, that it solves their problems, not just, hey, we've got all these great ideas, come and take what you like. Yeah, idea implementation with the end user in mind is crucial, yeah. crucial. Okay, excellent, Stephen, excellent. So, one last question that I have for you before I, you know, give you the red carpet and let you tell everybody how they could find you, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, you made a statement in one of your, your talks, I remember watching, and you said the, the phrase creativity, or do you think creativity is killing innovation? That, that like, really stuck with me, and I, I'm, I just what, – what do you mean by that? Creativity is killing innovation because to, to most people that just seems paradoxical. Yeah, it is a little paradoxical, but it comes back to quantity versus quality. When we focus, like, do we need creativity? Of course we do. We need it, but creativity has to be in the context of what are we looking to achieve? What's the impact, the value that we want to create rather than people who sort of sit around on the grass smoking a joint, looking at the clouds and say, hey, we got all these really crazy ideas. That's not value. That's just quantity of terrible ideas. So how do we move from this mindset of new is better, bright, shiny objects are something we should be chasing, as opposed to saying, let's figure out where we need to make the greatest investments. That's going to have the biggest impact on our organization. And let's double down on our investments there. And then, look, can we use creativity to solve those? Absolutely. But it's focused creativity 
rather than just so expansive that we end up creating a lot of wasted time, energy, and useless ideas. Got it. Okay, now that makes more sense. I hope the uh, listeners and viewers get that now. And I hope uh, you guys are inspired to take all those ideas that are in the ether and start using actual proper lenses to frame your focus. So it's not just all out here and, and, and just so hard to write. That, that's why most creatives are often just kind of confused people that have no aim. It's because they, they don't have the right lens. There is no focus, really. It's just creating probably for the sake of it or for the fun of it. And that's fine if you have a lot of time on your hands, but in the world of Steven Shapiro with multi-million dollar Fortune 500 clients, you know, they don't have time for that, right? And most people don't anyway. Yeah, yeah I think that is, that is spot on. Look, if it's, a, if it's a creative endeavor, like I play the saxophone, I do magic. I don't make any money off of magic. I don't make any money off playing the saxophone. But I love them because for me, they are just something I enjoy doing for myself. Mm. That's awesome. There's nothing wrong with that. But if I'm going to say, hey, I'm going to become a magician and actually make that my living, I have to have a different perspective on it. I can't just sit around and dream about what it's going to be like to be a professional magician. I need to really figure out who wants this. What's the value it creates? How can I create even more value? How can I solve bigger problems through the lens of magic and then apply that to be able to create as much value for someone else so that it creates value for me in the long run. That's always my perspective is I don't focus on what's valuable to me. I focus on what's valuable to my clients because I believe that if I can create millions and millions of dollars of value to my clients, it's going to be financially worthwhile to me at some point. 100%. Perfect. Perfect way to summarize everything we've been talking about. This uh, has been a definitely a mind-expanding chat with Stephen Shapiro, guys. Uh, I'm going to just leave it to you, Stephen. Now, where can my audience, the viewers and listeners, learn more about the legend that is Stephen Shapiro? <laughs> legend. <laughs> Not so sure about that, but I appreciate it. Uh, easiest thing is just go to steveshapiro.com. There you'll find me. Uh, personalitypoker.com, uh, which you can get to from the site. We'll have the cards and if you want Invisible Solutions, it's InvisibleSolutionsBook.com. But pretty much if you go to my site, everything is there. Excellent. Guys, uh, check out the links in the description. They'll be there in the description for the, the podcast show notes and the description of this video if you're watching on YouTube or uh, Spotify. So, uh, Steve, thank you so much again for taking time out of your busy schedule to hop on the Making Magic podcast and share how you make magic in your life and business. Thank you. It was a blast. Great. Well, you guys have been watching and listening to another episode of the Make Magic Podcast. And if you're enjoying everything, feel free to give this video a thumbs up, turn on the notification, be sure to subscribe. Or if you're just uh, listening to the sound of our voices on any one of the popular podcast apps, feel free to follow the Make Magic Podcast. Follow me along with the journey. I'm interviewing some of the top minds out there to get your creative gears turning. So this has been another episode with Steve Shapiro and Sean Jay, and we'll see you guys in the next one.